This week on Two Dudes and Tunes, the U.S. was reeling from the fallout caused by the Vietnam War. A global oil crisis was brewing as Ayatollah Khamenei of Iran assumed power, leading to the Iran hostage crisis. Saddam Hussein rose to power in Iraq, and Pakistan was burning. The USSR invaded Afghanistan, China enacted the one-child policy, and Lord Mountbatten was assassinated by the IRA. The Three Mile Island nuclear accident occurred, and Pink Floyd released their 11th studio album to mixed reviews. It opened on the Billboard charts at number one and remained there for 15 weeks. This week, we dive into one of the all-time great albums, 1979's The Wall by Pink Floyd. Johnson, welcome to Two Dudes and Tunes with my friend Chris Robinson. How's it going, Chris? Man, it's going good. Awesome. Just um, digging the weekend yeah? right now. What happened to you this week? Well, so I've basically been living my childhood dreams. Um, I, like uh, most 30 something white males, I'm uh, somewhat of a hobbyist in things that I should be grown out of by now. I'm a uh, big fan of Legos. And um, being an adult with disposable income means that you can dispose of your income in stupid ways. And so I bought a uh, Lego set that I have wanted since childhood and never had. It's like an abandoned mine full of uh, banditos. And there's like a couple of Civil War like union looking soldiers. Nice. So I did that. And uh, then the other thing that I indulge in as an adult now that I couldn't as a kid was video games. Nerd! Um, my wife and I bought a switch recently and I've indulged in the self flagellation that is cuphead. Oh, man. Um, oh, it is brutal. And I, I actually got to the point yesterday where I realized like, I need to set the controller down, step away, step back, take a few deep breaths, and maybe do something else for a little bit. <laughs> because I was doing the same the same run and gun, same miserable, miserable jumping puzzles over and over and over and over and over again. Well, uh, so that was my my week was uh spent partially in gleeful leisure. And uh, partially in the misery that is um, Cuphead. Nice. I can't quit either. Sounds sounds like a good time. I know on oh, our man, it was. I know on our home front we've uh, spent most of the week uh, just kind of getting back into the rhythm of going back to work after being off for a couple of weeks at the end of the year, and that's that's always a, a great time. But it's nice to kind of get back into the routine and find some sort of rhythm in life. Feel the rhythm. Yeah, it's interesting. By the end of Christmas break, you know, my wife is a teacher, so she had been off for like maybe two and a half weeks by the time she actually got to be back with her students. And we were both really ready to get back to work, oddly enough. I think if if the pandemic weren't a thing, we would have gone somewhere and had fun and wouldn't have wanted to get back to work. But I think as much as both of us complained about it, we were both kind of ready to get back to work. So it's been good to like get back into a routine. Kind of feels more stable. Yeah, definitely. Well, speaking of stable, uh, this week we drew uh, 1979's The Wall by Pink Floyd. And uh, we could probably both agree as we kind of start talking about this album tonight uh, that this was not necessarily a stable period in their career. Uh, no, but not, I think not at all. I'm looking forward to getting into uh, the conversation uh, that we have for that. So, are you ready to do it? Yeah, let's dive in. We picked this album, uh, the The Wall by Pink Floyd. This was actually on my list. 
Um, I'm interested to know kind of before we even get started talking about uh, the wall, kind of where does it rank to you? What, what was your experience with this album beforehand? So, well, my experience of it, actually, I'm pretty sure my experience of it started on LimeWire. Illegal! Um, I did not spend as much money on buying music for myself as I should have in my early years. And I only really, I only bought albums that I was dead sure I would like and had already kind of heard so with The Wall, I was kind of in the dark about it. I had heard Comfortably Numb on the radio because it, to this day, plays on the radio. Um, and so I think I had, I had a billion burnt CDs of just really motley mixes of, like, everything from Frank Zappa to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young to... Oh, I, I can't even remember, but uh, uh, Comfortably Numb was for sure on one of these albums that I had made for myself, these mixed CDs. And so that, that was kind of the beginning of my exposure to The Wall. And I feel like late high school is where I actually sat down and listened to it, late high school or early college. Because this is, Pink Floyd is my, I would say they are my favorite band, period. Um David Gilmore's guitar playing still gives me chills. Um, and so I had heard about the wall, heard that it was their grand epic and was, I don't, I don't even remember the specific moment listening to it because I was kind of disappointed. Um, so that was that that has been my exposure to it and I don't think I had even listened to it a full way through since that like last year of high school or first year of college or whatever it was because it had such uh I don't know I I felt really underwhelmed by it I guess. Yeah. Well, I can say my first experience with it was one of those experiences that really taught me that music could be something more than just a band playing music. Um, in our launch episode, I mentioned a story about uh, riding around in this 1986 uh, Chevy Celebrity Station Wagon. And if anybody ever wants to know what one of those was, just Google it. It was a Chevrolet Cavalier that they put a station wagon, wagon on the back of it, and it was underpowered, it had no air conditioning, and we were in San Antonio, Texas, where the summers are, you know, 30 days in a row of 100-plus degree heat, and then it rains, and then you do Oof. that all over again. Oh, man. Um, no air conditioning, and it had a cassette tape player. The FM radio did not work in this car. So if oh, you didn't have it a on tragedy. a cassette if you did not have it on a cassette tape player, you were listening to talk radio. What a piece of junk. She may not look like much, but she's got it where it counts, kid. And uh, so my dad became a connoisseur of gas station cassette tapes. They used to have these <laughs> cassette tapes just on the rack right by the register, and you would impulse buy whatever. And we were uh, driving to my grandparents' house, and I was about seven, maybe eight years old, and we had stopped for gas in Junction, Texas, just kind of this backwater middle of nowhere where the highway divides. And we were about to start like a 200-mile leg of the trip where we would not really see any major towns or whatever while we were going up through all this farmland and oil land. And uh, my dad uh, brought this cassette tape out of the gas station and sat down in the seat. And being, you know, the, the early 1990s, I was sitting shotgun at eight years old. And uh, he looked me in the eye and said, you're about to go on a musical journey and pop this cassette tape in. Whoa. It changed the way I felt about music just in general. And one of the things that still sticks with me, uh, and it's been 26 years ago that I heard this album for the first time, uh, was the fact that it had a beginning to ending continual storyline so it was one of those albums that 
you could take a song like Comfortably Numb out of it and you could enjoy just that song, but that song was a piece in a continuing story arc um, that to really understand Comfortably Numb, to really feel what that song's trying to tell you, you needed to, ex- to experience everything that happened before it. And even right as on. an eight-year-old, I got that. Man. So that is, can I, can yeah. I just interrupt and Absolutely. say, that is so young to be exposed <laughs> to the wall. Yeah. Well, that, is, that is sitting your five-year-old child down and reading them Moby Dick every night before bed. <laughs> is what that is. That is bonkers to me. Well, and I know for a fact that there are most of the themes in this album that I probably still don't understand because I was never in a band. I was never a rocker. I was never, you know, there are a lot of things that are going on in this album that definitely as an eight year old, I didn't understand. And now you also aren't, you aren't the kind of guy to beat your wife either. No, um, definitely not. So that, that is a thing that thankfully you have no experience with that, at least from the context of the lyrics in the album, it sounds like Roger Waters was like kind of unfortunately had dipped a toe in at some point. It seems like he might take a swing every now and then. Or, or at least break stuff. I, I, that's probably an unfair accusation. I, I can think of maybe one lyric that maybe kind of points to, that but there's some breaking glass in this album definitely uh, a few a, f- a few moments there's definitely a fist going through a hotel wall Ugh. well let's talk a little bit about uh the album i mean i'm sure all four of our listeners are very very familiar with uh with the album which shout out to mom and dad hi guys um, yeah hey mom hey dad <laughs> My mom didn't really like Pink Floyd, so this is only going to hit for three three oh, of our listeners. Bummer. Well, <laughs> they say don't alienate 50% of your audience. I guess if we're batting 75%, we're okay. Yeah, yeah. That's that's probably as best we can hope for. for. For those people who don't know this album or don't understand it, it's a 26-track double album. It's the 11th album that Pink Floyd released, so... It's kind of the the apex of their of Pink Floyd's Pink Floydiness. Uh, after the tour that resulted from this album, uh, Roger Waters and uh, Gilmore broke up and went their separate ways. Uh, with Gilmore keeping Pink Floyd's name and Roger Waters working on a bunch of other projects, but that was kind of the beginning. You know, that was even though Pink Floyd's still around today it hasn't been the same since this album and the tour that came from this album. Um, it's over 80 minutes long and uh, follows the life of Mr. Pink, a rock star who from the day of his father's death in world war II all the way through to his growing fame and isolation and life troubles to being totally isolated from the world is then brought back around through a series of rebirth type images to find balance in his life. Is that a fair estimate you think? Yeah, I would say so. Um, And also just to avoid listener confusion, this is not Mr. Pink as portrayed by Steve Buscemi in the Tarantino film Reservoir Dogs. Um, This is a completely different Mr. Pink, a rock star, just, just to belabor that really weak joke. If they really put forth the effort, I'll give them something extra. But, I mean, it's tipping automatically. It's for the birds. We might have to Kaiser Soze it later. (laughs) So going back to the album a little bit, um, talking a little bit about it and looking at the life arc of it, this is pretty loosely based on uh, Roger Rotter's personal story, kind of as what we've alluded to. Um, Mm -hmm. And that has been noted by countless philosophers, countless critics, um, that maybe this is just a shallow retelling of his own autobiography. Um, what kind of research had you done? Well, I, I was interested because I had heard the basic story, which probably any of our listeners who are real into Pink Floyd or even just classic rock in general probably already know this. Um, but, the beginning of this album started 
with their In the Flesh tour. They were touring their uh, album Animals. And that that was almost kind of the most interesting part of this story to me was the circumstances that led up to the album's creation because they were playing huge, huge venues full of tens of thousands of people. Probably, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if hundreds of thousands is probably an exaggeration, but um, it was real interesting because they didn't have any opening acts, um, which on the one hand might seem, kind of pretentious but their concerts were very much an experience there was um a lot of set to put up a lot of um inflatable animals you know uh, uh, kind of the precursor to the inflatable puppets that you would see in the wall live show and so what that meant was their crowd would be standing around for hours sometimes in rain or otherwise crummy weather. Um, and a lot of them would be inebriated or on drugs or what have you. And so they sort of created a really hostile environment to try and step into and create this intimate experience. And so one of their shows, uh, I, I don't remember, I think it may have been the closing the the video I watched, I think it was the closing concert of the In the Flesh tour. They were being heckled kind of relentlessly. And Roger Waters, I think, had had enough. And in a fit of pique, um, spit on some of the people in the front row, which um, I think according to all the guys in the band, you know, Roger Waters is kind of known for being irascible, uh, maybe even a little bit of a bully, but I don't think that he was the kind of musician to spit on his audience. He wanted to perform for them, but that large venue didn't really allow for that. And so that sort of, I think, started, I don't know, not a crisis of faith, but it was an inflection point for Roger Waters, certainly, as far as why am I doing this? What is going on? What has led me to this point? Um, you know, a lot of emotional vulnerability goes into performing your music on stage. And so to me, that's almost the most interesting thing is there a band who's achieved monetary success. They're extremely famous. Um, and yet they kind of reach this super low point, which I think that's probably a pretty common narrative in rock. Don't you think? Well, yeah, I think that is. And, it was only exacerbated by their management making a ton of really bad investments in the mid seventies. So even though that tour was relatively successful and their prior 10 albums had been extremely successful, uh, you know, they basically rode a rocket ship to the top in the 15 years that they were around as a band, you know, Mm -hmm. come 1976, 1977, uh, after a series of really bad investments, the band was flat broke and were struggling to to make payments and to pay payroll. And so they needed an album and, you know, they were under contract with, I believe it was Columbia. And, yeah. you know, Waters and Gilmore sat down and basically concepted two albums, uh, both of them pretty much led by Waters because he was kind of the the creative force driving at that point and Gilmore is kind of distancing himself and having a lot of his own you know personal issues in life as well so water is just as a force of uh, nature kind of forced through both these demos and neither demo really excited Columbia but Columbia greenlit what eventually became the wall uh, well, something something that's kind of interesting to me about that, you know, it's easy to look at the wall and go like, oh, that was the beginning of the end, which it was. Um, but both Gilmore and Rick Wright, their keyboardist, um, had been working on solo albums. Mm-hmm. So, like, to me, that indicates they aren't even super invested before that, like at some point after Animals, I kind of wonder if they lost interest because like that's they did they 
part of what the band said, at least from the research I did, was they didn't really have any better ideas. You know, Roger Waters had these two concept albums, um, the pros and cons of hitchhiking, and um, I think the the one that became The Wall was like another brick in the wall or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just kind of went with um, another brick in the wall because nobody else in the band had any other ideas. So I kind of wonder what else, you know, if it was just a continuation of being kind of frustrated with Roger Waters, because he spearheaded most of animals, if Mm. I'm not mistaken, that was kind of his baby. Well, and you look at that, it was kind of his baby, but Gilmore is credited for about half the songs as a writer on about half of them. Whereas Mm. on the wall, it's 26 tracks and Gilmore is credited as author on two of them and he's co-author. Yeah. So, you know, you see that like resting of power by Waters here on this album. And in the end, Waters ended up making, you know, that other album as a solo album yeah. uh, anyway. So kind of tells you where they were headed. Um, I want to, I want to circle back. Did you, how much research did you do about their money troubles? Because that was something that was super fascinating to me. I did a little bit. I would, I, I saw that they had basically done a bunch of speculation. Um, yeah. And ended up firing their management company and all that because of it. The reason they got into that speculation, and you're going to love this. I know you're going to love this because I know you. They were being taxed some 83% of what they were making. That's why a ton of those rock artists like the Rolling Stones became tax exiles. I think David Bowie was a tax Mm -hmm. exile for a while because like, like I'm all for roads and schools. I'm not. I'm not super conservative. I don't don't want to get into politics right now, but you know, even, even I, I, who am a pretty like, Oh yeah, we should have taxes. We need to pay for things. 83%. Like I would be dumping my income into some sort of investment scheme Mm -hmm. just to try and make some money. That blew my mind that they were paying that much in taxes. That is bananas. You're paying that much in taxes, and like you said, they're playing these huge shows with these massive sets. I mean, mm-hmm. the Wall Tour almost bankrupt them again because it was a flop. Yeah, but it that's was, what's so crazy. It was People loved big, it, but it was like it made them no money. Exactly. And you look at like pictures of uh, the set pieces and the the fact that literally throughout the course of that album, they build a huge wall between the audience and the band and then tear it down in the middle of this show. Like, can you imagine moving that from city to city on so I, a two year long tour? I looked this up. It's uh, the, so the wall itself was 33 feet tall, 260 feet wide by some estimations. Uh, there were 450 bricks that made up the wall and they were five foot by two and a half foot by a foot and a half. Mm-hmm. They had to lug that from place to place. No wonder they didn't make any money. That is, <laughs> uh, that is too much work. If you're making music for and, a living, that is too much work. You should not be doing that much. And work. that is just one of the set pieces. I mean, uh-huh. This is an album that almost every song had a different costume. Almost yeah. every song had its own intricate lighting or fire effect or any number of, I mean, that's just the wall that they're building. And I get well, that that's the namesake of the album, but that wasn't even the the technical part of it. And what's what's funny to me is Roger Waters' initial ideas were crazier. Um, so one of the one of the ones that stuck out to me was that he had this idea for a giant inflatable worm. Wacky waving inflatable arm flailing tube man. Wacky that would become their stage. And he thought like, yeah, sure, we can lug that from place to place, right? Then we have our own venue. That is just bananas. Like no wonder somebody to thank God for them at least somebody told them no. Yeah, somebody put the bricks brakes on that. 
<laughs> Somebody put the bricks on that. Boo, you so we've, we've already mentioned it. This album ended Pink Floyd pretty much. Game over, man. It's game over. Yeah. Part of that was due to really mixed reviews. I mean, we said it in the intro. It spent 15 weeks at number one as an album, mm-hmm. but the reviews were anywhere from loving it to absolutely hating it. Um, here in a little bit, uh, we'll talk about some of that, but that had to really stress out uh, the band as a whole, knowing that you know this thing that they'd made uh, was not critically well accepted. Yeah, it it's interesting to me because it is like it's a Pink Floyd album, obviously, but it really at at times this album feels really bereft of some of the things that I love about Pink Floyd, like we were talking about David Gilmour and uh, Rick Wright working on solo albums. And I, I, I'm familiar with David Gilmour's first solo album. It's, it's pretty much just self-titled. It's got some great stuff on it. I mean, it's not um, the, you know, high bar and high caliber that Pink Floyd's work is. Um, but I listened to a little bit of Rick Wright's album, his solo album called wet dream, which I had to look it up on YouTube. Um, I couldn't find it on Apple music. Um, and it's a good record. It's not amazing, but you can really hear that even though maybe Roger Waters felt like Rick Wright didn't contribute as much. It is. He was for sure a very staple part of their sound. A lot of the, the kind of jazzier arrangements, some of the more interesting chord progressions. Um, I'm not sure what all, from a production standpoint, Rick Wright did, but he really kind of feels like a secret sauce that is missing from some of the wall. Um, and so I don't know if maybe that kind of affected reviewers' feelings about it. Um, but it's definitely something that I felt like was missing from the album and would make it feel a little strange at times. I think that's a, a great point um, to, to think about, too, because we all or most people think of bands by who their front person is or who you know the strong personalities are. Uh, yeah. In this case, you got Roger Waters and David Gilmore, but you you forget that there's a whole band there. And when you're in a room together and you're creating something together, even if you aren't the, the leader, you still provide some sort of input. And if you're off doing your own thing, then that may be the five or 10% that would have taken this from being just mediocrely received to being just, Oh my goodness, this is the greatest thing ever done. Because in terms of rock albums, this thing changed the way people thought about rock music mm-hmm. uh, at, at a time when rock music was like the thing to be in. Welcome to the rock. There is a point at which this album goes from being for me anyway, a super engaging rock album that has a lot of content about Waters' personal life and his personal struggles and descends into this kind of nightmarish Broadway theater about the problems with post-war England. Mm -hmm. And I think both of those things are interesting, but they don't fit together, or at the very least, it didn't feel like the band pulled off putting them together i looked up today the how the vinyl would have split up what is side one side two Mm -hmm. so side one starts with in the flesh ends with mother Mm -hmm. so there's some pretty strong stuff there in the flesh is fantastic actually i wanted to bring this up when we decided to do this album i was um i dropped megan off at work and was driving driving myself to work obviously and um, we've got a reasonably new car. And so I was like, oh, this is going to be great. And I cranked it. I cranked the volume because that first track, 
in the flesh is great in the flesh question mark because there's another track called in the flesh but man it was everything that i love about pink floyd roaring organ this bombastic guitar line roger waters howling over it oh man it's so great but then you hit like the thin ice and and even like i made a note here the I get so stoked every time I hear that plane mm-hmm. traveling from your right speaker to your left speaker or whatever it is. And I'm expecting like an explosion, like just the biggest, like London being blitzed explosion. Not a and baby it's like crying. A baby, it's a baby <laughs> crying. And that to me, that is indicative of how I feel about this album as a whole, because you go through side one in the flesh, the thin ice, another brick in the wall, the happiest days of our lives goes right into another brick in the wall, which that I, that is another one of my favorite uh, parts of this album. The the stuff at the beginning, the happiest days of our lives, you know, where Roger Waters has that fattened psychopathic wives that thrash them with an inches of their lives. That's the best lead in <laughs> to a song ever. I'm getting goosebumps now, but then, you know, so the first side is like, oh, this is going to be good. Like if I'm a Pink Floyd album I, or a Pink Floyd fan, I am stoked. And then it goes into side two and side two starts with Goodbye Blue Sky, which is fine. But like this real mellow, peaceful, kind of mm-hmm. soft, like tinkly ballad. Um, empty spaces is like for me was whatever, but then young lust hits and young lust is like the best, dirtiest, funkiest track. Yeah. Could not Um, have been a radio single. No, but Oh man, like David Gilmore's vocal performance on that is like the most rock that David Gilmore has ever performed with his voice. Um, and I, I know I'm rambling, but I'm going to get to my point here. So after Young Lust is for me where we start to drift into the, like self-pitying dreck. Um, because one of my turns and Don't Leave Me Now are just unlistenable. Mm-hmm. But I feel like they belong with the back half of the album. After you get to Goodbye Cruel World it kind of moves into more of these big sweeping orchestral ideas, big grand statements about English society and kind of the emotional repression that English education represents and that sort of thing. And so I just feel like, like if you're a diehard Floyd fan, you can get through side one and side two. But that second disc, like for me, a lot of that is just a no go. What did you, how do you feel about it? Because I've like kind of rambled on here. I'm curious what, what your feeling was. Well, I think for me, a lot of it comes down to the totality of the story that it's telling. So, yeah, I get it. The, you know, one of my turns, don't leave me now. Even another brick in the wall, part three, are kind of a, a low point in this album. Not every song can be as good as the song before it or the song after it even. Uh, Yeah. But I feel like if you take it start to finish from, you know, that, that plane crash at the beginning uh, and the baby crying, I mean, it's been, it's been dissected by everybody who's ever been interested in Pink Floyd, but, Mm. you know, supposedly, the sound of the plane crashing is supposed to symbolize, you know, Roger Waters' father dying, who uh, died in a plane crash uh, during World War II, and the baby crying is Mr. Pink or Roger Waters, and he's just a baby when his dad dies. And listening to that on vinyl, or listening to it even on cassette tape, is very different from listening to it on CD or any streaming music service. And one of my gripes with that is there's always like a two second gap between tracks. So this whole album kind of flows together. And the only time that there was supposed to be a musical break 
is when you picked up the vinyl, flipped it over to the other side. And so I kind of like the fact that, you know, like you said, the first side being in the flesh and ending at mother, that's a section of his life. And now we're having like a brief intermission to flip that record or flip the cassette tape or whatever it was to go into the next part of his life. Uh, and then changing discs to get into the next part. And then finally, the final flip of it when he starts coming out of the isolation. So it's a story really in four parts, each part being a side of a record. And you've got the, the young years, the impressionable years, the down and out just... I'm going through the motions and society's against me. Things aren't working the way I want to do them. And I know everything that's wrong. And my solution for that is just to lock myself away and build this wall and, you know, get as high as I possibly can and not let any of it bother me to having a breakthrough moment where you tear down that wall and come out of life almost, uh, not, not to just be happy-go-lucky, everything's going to be fine, but you've realized that you need to be out there and putting yourself out there and exposed to uh, all of the, not just negativity, but there's good things that you're locking yourself out from and experience that you're missing out on experiencing because you've isolated yourself. And so, yeah, I get it. There are a lot of tracks on this album uh, that are just absolutely kind of wishy-washy and weird, but I think they contribute to the totality of what we're meant to experience as a part of this album. And, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, listening through this album uh, this week, I listened to the whole thing start to finish twice, uh, and then I skipped around to the tunes that I actually really liked because, all right, I really don't want to listen to Don't Leave Me Now or One of oh, My Turns. Or I'm not really a big fan of and you've mentioned it as being a song that you kind of like, but I'm not really a big fan of Comfortably Numb. Um, I know it well, was. It's interesting that you say that because I, so to the point of maybe the length of the album and my experience of it, I wonder how much listeners, like contemporary listeners of this album, uh, that is contemporary to the time it was released, how much maybe they benefited from that interlude of like, oh, that's side one. I got to get up and flip side two. Maybe I'll listen to that later because this is really heavy. I kind of wonder what kind of space people had for that because I was exhausted oh, emotionally listening to the whole thing. It is just withering. It is a hard listen. I admit that. Um, it is a nonstop just barrage of musical experience, and it will wear you out. I kind of wonder if that, like I said, I wonder if that helped the experience of it. Uh, if being able to take their break, uh, you know, take a break, really made it more palatable. I think it probably did. I think also you and I, you know, being children of the 80s and really being cognizant probably towards the mid-late 90s have had the benefit of shorter and shorter attention spans. And so, you know, mm. this album clocking in even even in 1978-79, you know, this was billed as, you know, a really long double album. And so here you are with an 81 minute runtime. Like even back then that was considered a long time. You and I barely have the attention span for a three minute YouTube video. <laughs> um, so it only accentuates that effect, you know? Yeah. I, I think this goes back to my problem with the continuity and theme, because mm -hmm. I think a lot of the, kind of emotional wallowing that Waters indulges in 
happens in musically some of the stuff that just doesn't fit. Um, because there are, I, I, here's my, my hypothesis with this album is Pink Floyd's, maybe their greatest album is buried in here somewhere. Because there are so many songs that I hear from this album in isolation that I hear maybe on the radio or something that I love. But to take Comfortably Numb as an example, by the time I got to Comfortably Numb, I was sick of listening to the album. And especially given where it kind of lands um, right after Bring the Boys Back Home, you know, there's that big long, Bring the Boys! Uh-huh back home and it just kind of trails off and then you have that like really slow slide guitar that goes and it goes up Uh to the beginning of that song you're just thinking like at least I was thinking like oh geez man like I still have 30 minutes left on this thing oh man and and I just think a lot of the interstitial stuff isn't good especially some of the really shorter stuff like Vera mm-hmm. um which is a reference to Vera Lynn who I think she was the one who sang that will meet again don't know where don't know when I'm not sure but I think that's the song that's referencing meet again don't know where. Listen, I, I can't hear it too well. Do you suppose you could turn the music down just a little? Um, bring the boys back home. All these, a, a lot of these little tracks could have just been cut, and you could paste together like the greatest, like really long, but still on one vinyl album. Yeah. You could definitely cut this. You could definitely cut this from twenty six tracks down to fifteen. You, you could distill it down to thirteen, or I would argue, if you're going to be real cutthroat, cut it down to ten. Uh, it's interesting that you made the statement about attention span because there are some very long albums on our list and some very short ones. I think length. <laughs> Length doesn't matter if the content is really good. It's not length, it's girth. <laughs> there you go, and folks. I, I I really think that this album suffers from being really long and super thin. And there's just not as much meat on the bone as Roger Waters thinks there is. I feel thin, sort of stretched like but scraped over too much bread. Well, Chris, I think we've talked enough about the album itself. Let's uh, let's look at what some of the reviewers were saying uh, back uh, when the album was released. Uh, many reviewers didn't know how to even process this album. You know, being as it was such a a different concept, and even today, it kind of stands as its own kind of thing that a lot of other bands have. Uh, tried to emulate or come up with something close to it. Um, I thought it was interesting. I know in college we were told not to uh, to cite uh, Wikipedia articles, but now that I have my master's degree, I can cite whoever I want. So from Wikipedia, just this block of text here, I'm going to read out. Uh, Reviewing for Rolling Stone in February 1980, Kurt Loder hailed it as a stunning synthesis of Waters' by now familiar thematic obsessions that leaps to life with a relentless lyrical rage that's clearly genuine and, in its painstaking particularity, ultimately horrifying. By contrast, the Village Voice critic Robert Christgau regarded it as a dumb tribulations of a rock star epic backed by kitschy minimal maximalism with sound effects and speech fragments. Adding, in the New York Times, that its worldview is self-indulgent and presents the self-pity of its rich and famous and decidedly post-adolescent protagonist as a species of heroism. Melody Maker declared, I'm not sure whether it's brilliant or terrible, but I find it utterly compelling. Sounds like you were about uh, along the latter half of those. You probably agreed with Robert Kiskow. 
something you notice if you pay attention to the lyrics and especially even the visuals of the live show itself is Waters has a real negative opinion of women. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the depictions of his, of Pink's girlfriend as a mantis or, or, you know, those animations, which the animations in the film are striking. I haven't seen the whole film, but I've seen bits and pieces of it. Um, animations of a lotus turning into a vagina and uh, like that imagery is really on the nose and really one-sided and it, you know it's a narrative about one character right so we can't necessarily expect waters to give us both his side of the story and his girlfriends um but a lot of that stuff i find really hard to identify with um, well, I don't, I, I don't know what you, what, what is your take on that? Cause that, that was some of the stuff that really I found hard to stomach. Well, and I've never seen any of the film and I've never watched any of the tour. You know, I've seen photos of what was going on with it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I find it interesting. Your comment about him not, you know, necessarily respecting or regarding women very highly, especially in light of the sheer worship he heaps upon his mother uh, or that character worships his mom throughout this Is album. it worship or because I feel like it's more of like a um, a Stockholm Syndrome type thing. Mom's awesome. His, his mom really, I mean, in the first, well, in the track Mother, you know, the mother character really is kind of picking and choosing who he should be sleeping with. Um, I don't know. Maybe but, I just read that differently. And it may be that she's controlling or whatever. I'm withholding it. But he is so childlike and relying on her for everything. I mean, because I really like mom. Who, who sits down and asks their mother, do you think they'll break my balls? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's so dependent on her to then turn around and, as you astutely pointed out, just treat his girlfriend absolutely terrible. Um, so, you know, what, what's going on there? Yeah, it's interesting talking about his feelings regarding his mother. Um, it's totally edible. Yeah. (laughs) At the end of that song, he says, mother, did it need to be so high? Which was interesting because to me it says like maybe he felt like he needed a little bit of a wall, but that his mom went overboard too far. Yeah. Well, and certainly in the, in that actually kind of one of the most striking tracks in the album, uh, where is it? The trial, the mother character is just, Oh, just smothering and judgmental and the worst. And really, like, I think Waters kind of presents her as, like, one of the architects of Pink's demise. At least it kind of seems that way. You know, the judge condemns condemns his behavior towards his mom and says something about you know, the, your behavior fills me with the urge to defecate, which is like such a gross line. It's kind of difficult for me to parse because anti-heroes are really popular. And there are a lot of anti-heroes that I enjoy the films that they're, you know, the narratives that they're a part of, like Taxi Driver. I don't like Travis Bickle. You talking to me? But it's sure interesting to watch his life go down the drain, you know? And so I wonder what it is about that that is palatable to me, but not... I don't know if it's because I'm emotionally attached to Pink Floyd the band and I'm going like, well, wait, this isn't what I wanted at all. This isn't the great thing that everybody talks it up to be. Um, so I don't know. That's that I, I identify with 
the critics and I think the critics got it right. It's interesting that this album has been so lauded after it's quote unquote time, because I think they kind of, they kind of got it right the first time. It's not, it's a little indulgent to me anyway, in my opinion, it's a little indulgent and it's kind of adolescent and maybe even a little, I don't want to say problematic, but it's not, I don't, I don't think it is strong because of that kind of content. Well, and I think, I think you're right. So I think a lot of it has to do with the reviewers had a little bit more life experience and they understood a little bit more about life, but this album gets its legs really from, you know, the, the people like my dad who, when this album came out, my dad was 18 had just moved out of his parents' house and they were stationed in Germany at the time and my dad moved to Las Vegas. So instead of, you know, staying in in Germany with them, he went and began his adult life when this album Mm -hmm. came out and he's experiencing life for the first time and here's this double album that came out and he could put it on, he could listen to it and it connected with him, you know, the, the 18 year old experiencing life and maybe not necessarily in a great headspace at that time. And because of that, I mean, this album went 23 time platinum. It sold more than 20 million copies in its life. And it's the number two all time selling double record. Is it really? Yes, sir. Man. So what, did you, did you happen to look up what number one was? What the number one double album would be? Uh, you probably never heard of it, Chris. A uh, little band called the Beatles, the White Album. Oh, oh man, I feel dumb. What an idiot! That, that seems so obvious in retrospect. It happens to both to to the best of us, and the worst of us apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Well, anyhow, like uh, like we said uh, earlier, this did spend uh, 15 weeks on the top of the Billboard charts. Uh, that is the, a long 15 weeks. A long 15 weeks, and particularly buoyed by its hit single, which was The Wall Part 2, uh, which I thought it was interesting. I was, I was reading about the production of The Wall Part 2, and a lot of it was just luck and accident. Uh, that it became such a big hit. Um, when we no when, kidding. when we listen to that song, that's the the classic. We don't need no education, mm. and the the Cockney British boys band uh, choir in the background, you know, kind of rocking it out with them. That whole yeah. that whole choir thing was added in as an afterthought, and it was uh, just one of those things that. Uh, uh, the producers sat down and did uh, on their own without Roger Waters or uh, or uh, David Gilmore, any of them around. Uh, their instruction were to find a choir to to add a little bit of backing to it, and they did the whole song that way. And it ended up being just kind of the the piece that holds that whole song together and gives wow. it, you know, the the power that it has. I mean. That's one of those songs that anybody in junior high or high school, like even today, can still get behind, uh, especially when they're mad at their you know midnight homework and they've got a book report due uh-huh. tomorrow. And it's because yeah. of those kids' voices. And originally, uh, I can't remember where I read this. Uh, it was an actual like British boys' choir, uh, but they were singing it in proper English, and someone recommended they try doing it in kind of a Cockney accent and. I mean, that makes this song and it really does such an accident. Just, Hey, let's try this. I, it, it's funny. I kind of noticed that. And in my head I was like, Oh, that's cool. They went to like downtown London and found a bunch of like reprobate (laughs) children. Exactly. Angry truants. Street urchins. No, that's funny. That's interesting that that was a last minute thing too. I cannot imagine that song without the the big old choir well, and, in the background. And without that, so if that had not happened, what song would have been the hit single from this album? Because that song just kind of melts into the rest of 
the first the first half of this this album. I it, think it, you could make an argument for Young Lust, but that's just because I love that song and I, it's an up tempo number. But man, I, I and and from a guitar standpoint too, David Gilmore is really um, setting the standard for a lot of stuff. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds with, with guitar gear, but his use of delay pedals of that echo, that that's, um, I don't know where I'd be as a guitarist if I hadn't discovered the dotted eighth note delay, you know, that's the edge. That's you too, right there. And all the like really bad contemporary Christian music that, follows in his footsteps really poorly you know but like it's it's hard to imagine without that so that's really interesting that it's it was a sleeper hit it seems so obvious don't you think it does seem obvious because it's always been that way all right so i think we've pretty much drained uh this album uh as much as we could probably go on for a long time to go uh, at this point in the in the episode, we'd like to do uh, a reviews section where Chris and I will each kind of break down what we think about this album, uh, even though it's probably pretty uh, pretty explain self explanatory by this point in the episode. Uh, to make this show kind of have a continuing theme, we've settled on a review process where we're going to review albums and give them a number of strings. Uh, so one to six strings, six strings being, you know, the greatest album ever made or really at the top of the pantheon, the, the instrument's a good quality instrument, the strings are good quality, and it all seems to be working together. And the fewer strings you got, the, the worse off this album is. So, Chris, with that kind of said, uh, what would you give this album one to six guitar strings? So... When we decided to do this album, I kind of felt like if this were a movie podcast about Martin Scorsese, we started with Gangs of New York. There's a lot to like, but it's also terrible. You get your Leonardo DiCaprio, but you also got to take a little Cameron Diaz with it. Um... And so I wound up feeling like this was a three-string album. It's got some real ragers on there. I, you know, I talked about how much... Man, if you're ever in the car and you just want to rock out, just turn up the very first track in the flesh. It's got super big bombastic guitars. It's got Roger Waters howling over the top of it. It's got rock and roll organ uh, from Rick Wright, Nick Mason holding it down on the drums. There's a lot to like on this album. Um, you know, I've mentioned uh, Young Lust several times. Absolutely one of my favorite songs, one of my favorite Pink Floyd tunes, Mother. Um, I didn't even get to mention the guitar solo on Mother is just, it gives me goosebumps because David Gilmour does this thing where he plays just exactly to the lyrics and the theme. He does it in the solo for money. You know, the so the guitar solo in money is just this rip roaring fuzzed out solo that just sounds like all the like greed and avarice that they're railing against. You know, there's a lot to love about this album, but then you have to sit through stuff like, don't leave me now one of my turns which is super derivative and turns into a really bad version of um it made me think of that billy joel song about uh it's hard to argue with it crazy my 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 you want to know by now you know it, it it had just like a real derivative funk slash r&b thing tacked on at the end of it goodbye cruel world there are so many throwaway tracks and like i said earlier i feel like there is a great album buried in just loads of chaff yeah 
So I got to say, it's a it's a three, uh, three three strings out of six. Uh, if it's a regular guitar, and if they had just picked one theme to go with, it'd be three strings out of four bass strings to play to Roger Waters' strength because he's a bassist. So that's <laughs> that is kind of my my feeling that I've come to with this album. What about you? I think for me, since I experienced this album at such an early age, and it was one of those experiences that I shared with my dad in that incredibly hot car in the middle of the summer driving through <laughs> oil fields, um, I have established a, a little bit more love for this album, uh, partially because my first experience with it and my early experiences with it were more from a experiential and not understanding what was going on kind of way. So looking at the album in its totality today as an adult, as a, as a father looking back on it, I see what you see in it. But I think back to, to the early experiences that I had with it, where it was more about those rip roaring tunes and the connection that I made with my dad through it that made it, mean a little bit more to me. Uh, and I think a lot of the people who heard it early on in their musical lives, there's a reason why this album has endured, why it's still around, why people still listen to it and put it on this plinth of, you know, almighty rock albums and the dust cover is pinned up to the wall because, you know, the songs that are hits, the ones that do land are just massive successes. And you can kind of, mm -hmm. in, especially in the modern world where you have Spotify or Apple Music and you can just add those five or six songs that you actually like from the album to a playlist and you don't have to listen to any of the other crap, it has a higher <laughs> rating or higher ranking in people's minds. Uh, and yeah. I'd say that's probably partially the reason that I would give it, you know, four or five strings, not on a top-line guitar, but probably, you know, a decent, you know, Yamaha guitar or whatever. It's definitely not a Taylor. It's not a Stratocaster. It's not whatever. But, yeah. you know, it, it is obvious, you know, listening to this album and reading through the, the, uh, the lyric sleeves and realizing how interchangeable uh, Waters and Gilmore were, vocally speaking, uh, where, you know, one line is sung by one guy and the next line is sung by the other guy, and but it's still one stream of consciousness coming from two different voices, you realize kind of how disjointed they were at this point. You know, looking at this album and knowing that this was the last time that those two guys worked together successfully, you can see that in the final product. Yeah. And you can almost hear the you know what they're trying to do versus what actually happens and you end up with just a kind of disjointed ending but because it is so long because there are so many tracks because there is so much going on you can look past a lot of that disjointedness for the like you said five six seven eight nine ten songs that actually work together and that could be the actual album without any of the rest of that stuff. And I have a hard time knocking it down any further than, you know, five strings based on the fact that those tracks do exist in this 26 track mega album. Yeah, that, that really, that, I think that is a fair, I mean, we're certainly not here to judge each other's judgments of other albums, but you know, you can skip to the tracks you like. And I think if you do that with this album, it's fantastic. You know, they're really, you know, there is really a lot to like. I can, I can understand if not completely agree with five out of six strings. I can, I can see that it's not inconceivable to me. Well, awesome, man. I am really glad we got to talk about the wall this week in our first episode. Uh, what did you, what was your take on it? Man, I enjoyed myself. I enjoyed talking about this album, and I feel like we uh, started off with a super high degree of difficulty, so we can only kind of move on to something hopefully a little bit easier this time around. 
Speaking of moving on, the the last thing we have to do for this week's episode is select our album uh, for next week's discussion. Since The Wall was from my list, we're picking from your list. Uh, The way we're going to do that, I'm going to spin my magic little wheel of number generators, and we're going to see what we get for you. So here we go. Number 13, the 2010 album Flamingo by Brandon Flowers. Oh, man, I'm excited about it. This is going to be good. This is going to be real good. I'm uh, I'm excited, too. Uh, I have no clue who Brandon Flowers is, uh, so this will be a first for me. Oh, he's the lead singer of The Killers. Come on, man. Well, who are they? Oh, no. You have been under a rock, my friend. Apparently. Well, with that said, uh, looking forward to uh, talking with you next week about Flamingo by Brandon Flowers. Everybody, thank you for listening, and we will catch you next time. Talk to you later.